Richard Howard, who works out of the AWS London office, has interviewed a number of angel investors about the mistakes first-time founders should avoid, why CEOs should be open to mentorship, and more. Hello, my name is Richard Howard. I'm a startup business development manager for AWS. With me today on the podcast, I have uh, Fred Destin, who's been a venture capitalist for about 20 years now, or just under. He's invested in, in some incredibly successful companies like Deliveroo, Zoopla, Pillpack, Kazoo, and Secret Escapes. He is a partner and co-founder at Stride VC. Fred, thank you very much for joining me. I've got two questions. First of all, how are you? And second of all, do you want to buy some oil that I have in stock? Well, first of all, I'm doing well. Uh, the first thing to say is you're incredibly grateful to be in venture capital and to have steady income streams, which I know is far from the, the reality for most people. And my days, I feel a bit like a monk, you know, eat, sleep, pray, rinse and repeat. So got quite a well-established routine. Um, and, you know, that seems to be the same every day, whether it's the, the week or the weekend, which I'm sure is the same for most people. And no, I'm not buying oil because I don't want to take delivery of oil, which is what's happening to all the poor <laughs> people stuck in the May futures contract. They basically have oil on tankers that they never meant uh, to take delivery of. And so they're all screwed. Yeah, I, th I think it's not just May. The, the June contract looks like it's, it's going downhill as well. So it's a tough time to be in the commodities business, but we're, we're here to talk about startups. So it would be interesting to talk to you anytime about your, your incredible career and the companies that you've invested in. But you know, right now, this is uh, April 21st, and we're in the middle of the, the coronavirus crisis. And you've been an investor through the, last, the previous two crises. So I think you just started investing uh, just before the dot-com bubble burst. And then so you were a few more years into your investing career when the kind of 08 Great Recession hit. What are you seeing about this one that, that is different? And, and what are you seeing that might also be the same? Well, so 2000 has, a, I think, will present a lot of similarities in the, in the following way. So it started with a paper crash, so very different circumstances, um, in, in April 2000. And it progressively got worse. So we were still functional by early 01. Um, then we had September 11th and a real drop in the public markets in the U.S. And then in 2002, we had the knock-on effects of the bankruptcy of Qualcomm and all the CLACs in the U.S., all the telecoms. And so suddenly the situation got worse because we got about $100 billion in CapEx that came out of the telecoms market. And people think of it as 2000, 2001, but for me, it was a slow crossing of the desert and really didn't improve until Q3, 03. And the primary thing that it did is it got all the tourists out of the industry because it was hard, it was unpleasant, and you really had to love the craft to stick with it. And so the learning from that was that of a relatively deep, protracted crisis and the fact that you, you learn through that, you get better, uh, and you eventually, eventually thrive. What happened post-03 was fantastic. I think by contrast, 08, 09, was a uh, financial markets crisis, but startups actually did pretty well. Um, I'm not saying it was easy, but you know you had the rise of the iPhone and all the app store ecosystems and a giant surge in use of the internet and mobile. And so we were riding some macro waves inside startups that the rest of the market did not benefit from. And so in a way, I think 08, 09 was a kind of a warm up, unfortunately, for what we're, we're about to go through. 
Okay. And and so what are you seeing now that is similar to, at least in the startup world, to what you saw in 08 and 09? I guess I, we may not have the kind of the iPhone and stuff, but what are you seeing within funding and also how the startup founders themselves should be approaching it? Well, I mean, in practical terms, you know, the, the impact on the financing market is kind of obvious, which is your valuation slash by, you know, 30 to 50 percent, volumes down by, you know, 30 to 50 percent again. And, and you kind of know that it's sort of mechanical. The difficulty with this one is that it is extremely hard to forecast, first of all, how deep the crisis is going to be. And secondly, when we can expect to return to a decent level of economic activity. And so what I find quite frustrating is we have extremely mixed signals. You know, half of our portfolios, pipelines are doing well and the other half is getting obliterated. And it's true for almost every company. And so you're really in deep conditions of uncertainty and you don't know how deep you need to cut because your company is actually doing okay. And you're kind of wondering whether this is a short-term momentum that's playing through or whether actually you will fare through this crisis with, with accelerated growth because of you know, factors like the shift to digital and, 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 and factors that are positive for your business. So I've never lived through conditions of uncertainty quite like these. And I think that makes decision-making extremely frustrating for founders. The good news compared to certainly 02 or 03, but even 08 or 09, is that startups are like kind of designed to perform fairly well in environments of chaos, right? So we can adjust cost structures really fast, we can go to Amazon and ask for temporary discounts. We can reduce our employee base if we have to, our team, and then rehire if we see we're doing well. And so we have a lot of flexibility, not only in operations, but also in strategy. So I've seen uh, my companies immediately change their uh, market messaging. I've seen companies narrow down their product focus, but also reoriented towards sectors um, or, or uh, ideas that we're proving to have more traction in the market. So our speed of adaptation, like our our DNA, our, our velocity of, of uh, mutation, as it were, is so high that, you know, I think startups are quite uniquely positioned to, to actually do well in an environment like this. And every single founder I've spoken to has said, hey, you know, this is going to be tough. And again, we don't know for how long, uh, and I don't want to minimize that. But they're all saying, even the companies who have in the portfolio in travel are saying, you know, there is opportunity in this because the incumbents are going to suffer more than us, because the shift to digital is accelerated, because we are able to, for example, build our supply base faster in the face of less competition. And so I'm quite bullish long-term about the fact that we will absolutely build amazing companies, that startups as a form of life of an organization are uniquely positioned to do well. And I just think you need to have a very cool head on your shoulders right now uh, to take not too many decisions, but take the right decisions, you know, lay out your plan, stick with it, and then try and perform as best as you can through what is, I think, going to be quite a protracted uh, period of, of recession or depression. No, for sure. And, and when you're talking to your portfolio companies or, or any startups who are asking you for advice, is there a kind of set pattern of things that you would tell them to focus on in terms of, you know, immediately cutting costs? Is it, uh, you know, you need to start letting, uh, you know, drop in marketing spend or, you know, cut new hiring or, or you know, you need to have, get, you know, 10% uh, 
of people in, in the UK now furloughed or, or whatever it might be? Or is every company really specifically unique and depending where they either need to cut spending or, or maybe invest if, if this is actually an opportunity for growth? So I think the trap for venture capitalists and board members in general is to try and apply any form of recipe. It's a bad idea in a normal market. It is a worse idea in a difficult market. So the first thing you need to do with your board and actually demand of your board, I guess, as a startup founder is to say, I need you to really understand my business right now to a level of depth that you may not have gone to before. Because if you're not informed about what it is that we do, and in particular, what our operational risks look like, then you will not be well-equipped to help us make the right decisions at the board level or when it comes to approving budget and spend or thinking about runway. So on the one hand, the role of board members is sometimes salutary in the sense that they come in and they say, hey, look, we've talked to 20 companies. Here's a bunch of evidence that says there's opportunity here or the crisis is going to be worse or whatever it may be. So that perspective is helpful because you don't always have it running your business day to day. But at the same time, there is a danger of the tail wagging the dog, which is board members just coming in and saying, hey, you got to get cut burn to a sustainable level, which ends up being some random number. You know, you can spend 250 grand a month because we can raise three and that will give you 15 months of life, which is really should be an output, not an input. And so when I, I go through each company, it's like, okay, first of all, let me understand operational risk here because we are in most cases trying to limit the spend and kind of readjust how we operate. You can't do that in a vacuum. You need to understand whether product delivery capacity is impacted, whether uh, customer support is impacted. You need to deeply understand what it is that makes that business tick and then make choices that usually mean you're going to narrow the set of activities that you undertake. You're definitely going to have more of a focus on revenue generation or protection than maybe on building for the long term. So you, you kind of take out a bunch of activities that have to do with preparing for scale or you know, establishing a brand long-term or whatever it may be, and focus on two things. One is delivering great product, and that includes continuing to move your roadmap along. And number two is selling. Now, in some companies, marketing is sales. And you know, in other companies, marketing is a useful luxury as you're trying to think about moving from 5 million revenue to 100 million revenue, but is not something you fundamentally need that much of today if you're just trying to keep your revenue flat for the year or grow it 30%. So I think it is super important to have very situation-specific discussions and that these are grounded in a deep enough level of understanding of the business. You know what happens otherwise? VCs kind of feel like, and it's rational, they say, well, I don't understand the business and it's not my job to understand the business. Hence, I shall impose a spending cap on you. And then the founder goes, well, there's no way I can do that without cutting into muscle or putting us into a downward spiral. And hence, you're an idiot. And you know, you end up with these incredibly and increasingly tense conversations where the investors lose confidence and the founders are getting frustrated. And you know, that is a recipe for disaster because a toxic board at a time of crisis is really going to impact you. It may not impact you today. But in nine months, 12 months, 18 months, when you need the next round of funding and internal support and, you know, people don't feel like doing it, then you really, get, it, you know, the chickens come home to roost and it, it, it's how companies die. No, of, of course. And I think one of the hardest things to do as a founder, like you said, the, we haven't really gone through a time that's as uncertain as this. 
We don't know how long this is going to last. But as a founder, if you say, okay, there are cuts I can make in the business, particularly if you, if you um, unfortunately have to let people go, what you don't want to do is do it bit by bit. Right? If you're going to let you know five people go or 10 people go if you're a small company, you don't want to do oh, two people here and then in a couple of months' time, another two people, and then a couple of months' time, another two people, because that is just a way to kind of lead any kind of cohesion and, and kind of good feeling within the company. You want to do it as quickly as possible, rip that Band-Aid off, but you know, take care of your people, get them on the, any government scheme that, they, that, that you can, that's applicable for. But do you have a way when you think about this, you understand the companies deeply, you think there's a sure level of uncertainty. I don't know if this is going to be over in two months time and demand is going to really return or it's going to be 18 months time. So when you're thinking and you're talking to your, your founders, your CEOs, and they're saying, yeah, we, you know, we're going to have to let some people go because that level of uncertainty, do you think it's better to maybe not overdo it, but do it as much as you can right now. You're going to let 10 people go. And that is, you know, looking into 18 months in the future, or we're going to look, you know, six months and we can do it with five people going and, and, and then we'll keep our runway and everything will, will hopefully return to normal in six months time. How are you, are you thinking kind of six months, 12 months, 18 months when you're we're thinking about the adjustments that businesses have to make? Six, 12 or 18 months is probably more a factor related to whether you need refinancing. Sure. I like to go back to first principles. And the first principles are essentially, okay, how do you navigate through a crisis? Well, you navigate through a crisis by carefully designing a simple plan that can be communicated over and over again that probably involves the company doing less. So are there features that you can delay? Are there strategic initiatives that will still be valid in two years' time from a product standpoint? And, you know, what is really the core of what we do, what we solve for our customers, and in what minimal form, as it were, can we continue to deliver that so that we sell and demonstrate value or keep our existing customers, but then cut anything that's superfluous. And that plan needs to be refined, thoughtful, and I would say with the level of uncertainty we're looking at, with oil futures, as you mentioned, going negative, which has never happened in history, uh, regardless of the technicality of the May contract, you, you kind of have to assume this is going to be hard. So then we know that the best way to destroy trust is to make gradual cuts. Because by the time you do cut number three, nobody will believe a word you're saying. People will disappear in the darkness out of the company and people will whisper and you will 100% destroy morale. So what you have to do is you have to say, who's the going forward team here? Um, some people may be great contributors that you redeploy into new roles. There should be no rules. You used to be uh, brand support. Well, now you're... Uh, sell support like you know it, this there has to be no rules yeah. in this it just has to be what is the group of people that can rally together and take us through this and then you know when in doubt in the face of a crisis like this go deeper than is comfortable stretch yourself to the limits where you think wow this is really the edge at which i can operate and you might say, well, you're just an asshole venture capitalist trying to protect his returns. I think if you're a billionaire or if your company is sitting on, you know, if you're Apple, you can choose to carry people through a crisis like this. If you're a startup, uh, the best way that you'll be able to help others is to protect yourself. And, you know, we are thankfully, uh, I mean, maybe more so in continental Europe, but, you know, if you're in Denmark or Sweden, you know, thankfully you have a 
safety net that's in place. And it is why you pay taxes for, and it is the role of government. And I think that you you want to help people land on their feet, you know, to the extent you can. You want to make sure that you they understand why they're letting getting let go or furloughed, and and and, and ideally you help them in any way that you can find the next job. But make the hard choices. You know, your primary responsibility is to save the organism that is your company. Uh, if you do that well and you thrive, you will be able to rehire, recreate jobs, uh, etc. At a at a point in the future. And so, there's no shying away from the tough decisions that have to be made. And make them early, make them deep, and then don't dither in your plans. You know, I see a lot of people are tempted by radical pivots and etc and i think a lot of that is symptomatic of uh, somewhat panic behavior yeah and so you want to be crystal clear about value prop and product if there is a pivot to be made by all means do it but you know don't try and don't try and strategize your way out of a crisis where execution is the key that's going to take you out of the crisis yeah no i, I think that makes a lot of sense i think focus and, and clear-eyed i think so one of the things that amazon does really well and anybody that's done any, you know, reading on Amazon is, you know, we don't use PowerPoint. Uh, we use narratives, which is a maximum six-page document, kind of writing out our strategies. And this is, you know, across Amazon, across AWS, across every single team and, and individuals. You know, this is our strategy for the year. This is our strategy for the next eighteen months. You know, this is all the data that backs it up. This is how we're going to execute it. These are the these are the things that we think are going to happen. And in the four years that I've been at Amazon, I found that kind of writing even in, you know, it was all good times, uh, to be incredibly, uh, incredibly helpful for clear thinking and as a document that you can refer back to. Um, for, oh, we thought this was going to happen and we did it and actually this happened. And I would advise um, startup founders to, if you're, you know, writing out what your value proposition is, writing out your strategy for the next year, 18 months, whatever it may be, to do it in a narrative style. Don't do it in PowerPoint. Don't, you know, go as deep as you can and really be as, as process-driven as you as, as you can be. And, and I found that that kind of thing can be really, really helpful for, for clear thinking. And just writing everything down uh, makes a lot of difference than having it kind of all jumbled in your head. I, so I think that we, we've adopted very, very broadly and actually 100% inspired by Amazon. We've adopted memo writing uh, for years, actually. And when I sit on boards, I've been encouraging and sometimes really pushing CEOs to say, like, please drop the board decks and move to narrative format. I think it's a much more natural way of expressing yourself. The other things to mention here is you know, we have added complexities with this crisis, right? So we're remote. And, you know, not everybody's GitLab or Basecamp. You know, most of our companies yeah. are learning to work with remote. And so the two things that are obvious in remote is one is you constantly need to, as a CEO or a startup founder, you constantly need to over-communicate in simple ways what the mission is, but also what you're expecting people to do. Because you're not picking up on the non-visual cues. You don't have as much opportunity for repair if the message is misunderstood. And so you need to sort of have a very, very simple set of priorities that are repeated over and over and over again with language that is well understood. For example, do you have a common definition for churn across the company? It could be something as simple as that. And then you need to just hammer it home, hammer it home, hammer it home, so that people can judge the actions that they take against the sort of narrowed down, you know, survive, survive and thrive plan of the company. So that's one. And then number two, of course, is everybody's learning and everybody's kind of learned the language of asynchronous work. I mean, what that means in practice is 
if you document the shit out of everything properly, you will be able to build institutional memory in a distributed organization and you will be able to have accountability and learning. So it could be as simple as, I mean, we've always used Asana. Our use of Asana now is insane, like in the sense that, you know, a task is not just a task. It has the supporting documents, an explanation of what needs to be done, you know, subtasks for follow-up. And I mean, it just allows us to make sure that absolutely nothing that's on the critical execution path falls through the crack. Uh, we also do things where, you know, ahead of a meeting, uh, we use Notion to publish, quote-unquote, publish the agenda. So in other, in other words, you want anything discussed at a meeting, it has to be Notion ahead of the meeting happening, otherwise it does not exist. And all that stuff allows people to align and collaborate, and then you leave the face-to-face -face interaction is for complex decision-making, uh, arguments or you know disagreements or or social hey how are you doing and how was your weekend and actually uh, focus focus it much more on that yeah no i i think that makes sense and do you get a sense of kind of once the lockdown has uh, has passed or has eased even if the world itself isn't kind of back to where it was do you get a sense on, on how many of your companies are going to kind of adopt these remote working practices or whether they're going to say all right everything's Everything's you know, back to normal. Uh, we're back in the office. Well, so I think that we there is a fundamental shift here in thinking about what shared environments are for. And I'm going to paraphrase Naval, but you know I've been thinking along similar lines, which is a restaurant is not about eating food. And, and you know, a restaurant is about congregating with friends around the shared experience that happens to be food. Uh, the office similarly is, you know, why do we, aggregate people together in common environments if we're able to do the work remotely. So you, it allows you to rethink the role of the office. You know, maybe it's a place where people congregate twice a week. Maybe there's no desks anymore, a limited set of desks, and people uh, come there for specific meetings and collaboration sessions and things that we can't do remote and, and meetings with clients and, and, and that kind of stuff. Now, having said that, that's all well and good. But if you're a young parent of kids, uh, if you live in cramped quarters, if you, I mean, there's a bunch of mitigating circumstances, which, you know, there's a good reason why people like to leave their home and go to the office. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think the reality is going to land somewhere between the two. But I do believe there is a fundamental deep-seated shift in how we think about a bunch of activities. At Stride, we cut non-essential travel since we started. So we stopped going to random conferences. I mean, they're not random, they're great conferences, but we effectively stopped going to conferences that we didn't consider core. Yep. I think the only one we were doing outside of London and the UK was Slush because we love Slush. But everything else, we're like, we don't hop on a plane to go to some VC conference in Berlin. We just don't. And that was driven by environmental concerns. And now we can mesh environmental concerns with actually saving time and having interaction that's just as good remotely, et cetera. And so I think that if you, if you bake in the desire for environmental impact with what we're learning here, I think there is, there's something exciting happening, actually. Yeah. And I think that's also a space where a lot of you know, new companies can be born. You know, out of crisis, there is opportunity. So one of the things that I want to talk to you about, you did a, a tweet thread. You're great at the tweet threads, potentially inspired by Mark Andreessen, about the startup death spiral. And that is when I reached out to you and, and asked if you'd come to the podcast and you were gracious enough to do so. Would you be able to go into a little bit more detail on, on what that death spiral is? Yeah, so this may sound like trite advice, but actually I think it is the core of the difficult decision-making that we have to make. 
So startup death spiral is comes in the scenarios where a company decides to or has to cut so deep that its ability its ability to deliver product or to deliver on customer satisfaction gets impacted and gradually it starts losing clients again the investors or the board or or management or the team starts to be dispirited uh you cut costs even further in a kind of last ditch attempt to extend your runway and effectively it's kind of your core target here which has been to extend your life and so being the thing that destroys your life and so the nexus is you need to cut deep enough that you're realistically maximizing your chances of success without putting yourself in a situation where you're just not able to grow or to deliver on the product experience that you promised the way you're going to get through this crisis is not because you cut costs to such an extent that people take pity on you and say well they get a long runway we'll fund them the way you're going to get out of this crisis is by delivering a narrative that says you know what when this is over and when the world turns around we are going to have such an incredible asset in terms of people tech install base and whatever else it is that we will be able to build a giant of tomorrow because people still buy narratives and especially in a crisis like this you have to look through the short term and be able to see that beyond the hardship is a is a bright future for companies where they can really you know dominate or they can really make a difference to the world or or whatever in whichever way they phrase their own mission so startup death spiral is usually usually investor inflicted and it is a you know you need to cut costs harder i don't care what it takes and then you end up uh, just basically with a defeated organism that's not able to function then you cut costs again then you get a bridge loan for 500k with a 3x liquidation preference and you get four months of cash left and then you're desperately trying to fundraise or to sell your company and guess what you know selling your company in a crisis with the uh, numbers that have gone down you know nobody nobody buys that so so always remember that you need to move the ball down the field you need to sell close customers or build if you're not closing sales maybe you're building a foundation of free users for the future or whatever it is you're building an asset somehow because if you stop building the assets you can get into the startup death spiral it is not a theoretical case i have personally been involved with a number of companies where they do end up in that in that environment and at some point they lose their vp engineering and you know they start to lose some critical resource and the machine is suddenly broken and there's no recovery so to put this in practical terms so say your company is stripe when it was 2 years old right so maybe stripe as a payments platform needed 40 people to operate at the skinniest because maybe they had core platform engineering they had merchant processor integration like whatever it is and so if you looked at stripe and you cut all the fat away on all the non essential and you redistributed the resources to be revenue producing and product producing there is some kind of incompressible level of spend where you have to at some point go to your board and say look we are going to spend 250k a month baseline and you know that is what we need to be able to look like a viable organism and to keep doing something meaningful and you know if people tell you well you need to cut cost by another 50 grand it's like well i can't do that without taking out eight of my key resources and i'm not doing it and you know by the way don't sit on your ass waiting for your existing investors uh first of all to understand your business so like i said over communicate and get them involved but number two you know 
some people will play games with you. Some people will take an opportunity to recap you, to refinance you at very yeah. low levels. And so as a founder, I'd never in a million years do that. But you know, there, there are people out there who are quite calculating about taking ownership of your company. So don't be naive. Be out there talking to people. Generate plan B in terms of fundraising. You know, You need to be on top of every aspect of this and not sit back, I guess, and take guidance from your investors as to anything related to fundraising. Don't outsource anything. You know, the survival of your yeah. company depends on you. And you need to be, unfortunately, you need to be on top of every aspect of that. No, for sure. And I think um, you mentioned there, you know, a couple of a couple of um, terms that you might see in in, in um, you know liquidation preferences and, and that kind of thing that you might see in uh, term sheets kind of uh, creeping back in. You did a great post on on Medium, and if anybody's listening wants to read it, if you if you go to um, Fred's Twitter profile, it's at fdestin. It's his uh, pinned tweet, um, "Barbarians at the Gate Venture Edition," about some of these kind of negative or negative to founders at least terms maybe creeping back into to term sheets and to, to contracts. Is that something you're actually seeing or is it something that you were just kind of hearing rumors of? So uh, the first thing to say is it's really interesting for me to see what happens because my view is over the last 10 years, we have moved away from a lot of these terms. And I feel like the venture ecosystem has matured and people recognize uh, that they don't really deliver any value, especially at a portfolio level. Uh, in other words, the cost, the heartache, headache, and loss of trust generated by these terms versus the benefits that they provide, especially at a portfolio level, are uh, so uh, skewed towards being negative that people have kind of learned not to use them anymore. Now, it is also possible that people just adapted to use a nice founder-friendly language and founder-friendly terms simply because market power shifted and that we're about to see a return of that. Now. We have not seen this firsthand, but we've, I think Harry and I spoke to six or seven people who talked about last minute valuation drops, which we can come back to in a second, but also uh, aggressive anti dilution warrants days before closing, et cetera. Now, the problem in a way is not so much whether you renegotiate. Look, if you have the, if the ceiling just fell on your head and the markets have changed and you want to go sit down with an entrepreneur and say, look, I can't take this decision through to final completion. We have to sit down and discuss what that looks like. And then each party kind of, you know, takes some pain. In other words, you do, maybe you lower the price a little bit. Maybe the VC doesn't see the price lower to the level that he or she would have wanted. But, you know, you get to a place where everybody's suitably uncomfortable and you feel that that reflects market conditions. I think that's a legitimate discussion to have. What's happening, I think, in practice and what we've heard, so this it's not in the rumor camp. It's like people said, you know, out of some of the accelerators, et cetera, saying we have seen behavior uh, that we think is shameful, uh, et cetera. What's happening is it is a one-way, you know, a few days before closing, dump a bunch of degradations to the term sheet. And, you know, it's kind of you sign or we walk. And I think that the reasons why founders have every right to feel absolutely pissed off is partly because these renegotiations happen at all, but partly because of the way in which they're conducted, which is that is power dynamics at play. That is cramming someone down because you can. And I, and I, I hate that. I mean, I literally, I, I think that's shameful. Yeah. If you are investing in a startup that is going to be successful, it is a minimum seven, most likely 10-year journey 
And if you get off on that kind of foot, then there, you know you instantly lose trust. And I think you you mentioned earlier that is not how you're successful across a portfolio by you know screwing an extra few percent or anti dilution measures into contracts when it's a down market. It's by investing in the best founders and helping them build great companies. The only, the only thing that really helps you make money in a fund, so you have 25 companies in the portfolio, is two, three, four, five of them will be exceptional, and another five will be somewhere between good to great, and then you've got a great fund on your hands. So when in these upside scenarios, none of these downside terms matter at all. They have absolutely zero impact. So the only place where they matter is when you're trying to save cents on the dollar and you get into these protracted battles with your pissing off founders and you know ripping them of any return they could have had to save a few cents on the dollar. It is, it's kind of actually at a portfolio level, it's sort of brain dead to do that because it really literally delivers no value. And I'm hoping that people kind of see that for what it is, but you know, the reality is um, the reality is the marginal decision-making. So people say, well, we'll put another half a million in, but we want the marginal return on that to make sense. So people kind of get myopically focused on should we write the next 500K check? And then maybe the partnership is pushing the individual partner to come up with a 3X lick pref because they're like, well, we want the return profile of that you know, that rescue round to make sense. And, and that's how in seemingly rational ways you end up with things that are actually irrelevant, not useful, irrational, and, you know, misalign us investors with founders, which I think is probably the most profound damage that it causes. If you're a founder in this situation and you, you know, you have this happening, it's, it's a down market. So VCs either aren't investing or the bar for investment is incredibly high and the due diligence process is probably longer than it's, than it's been since 2008, 2009, 2010. And you get presented with these kind of terms you know, what would be your advice to the founder in that situation? Well, I mean, first of all, it's tough, right? So if you don't have multiple yeah. offers and somebody's squeezing you and you're kind of holding your nose, it's, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to say there are easy solutions. I think for me, negotiation is really about, it's an opportunity to build relationship and even with investors who might be tough. So the way I've never considered that anything is market. I mean, arguably, even a broad-based weighted average anti-dilution protection, which everybody considers market, is like, why is it in there that investors have price protection? I mean, you can argue the pro and the con. My point is, don't consider anything to be market. And then you sit down looking the investor in the eye. You don't do this through the lawyers on the tough closes. And you go, what you know the risk you're exposing me to, why are you doing this? And I think that you hear the rationale you have to force people to go through the uncomfortable step of explaining to you as a human being why they're employing certain terms so the last thing i would do is to start playing ping pong between lawyers uh, i think that you do that for a bit and then you determine that you have four or five key terms that need discussing and you know this is where it's, it's got to be principle to principle eye to eye and say why are you doing this? And I think that 90% of the time, you'll be surprised by what you're able to get away with. And also, if somebody's really decided to invest in you, so this is an interesting one. Sure, VCs can walk away, but the reality is investors don't find that many founders they want to back. You know, this is kind of a rare event, right? Yeah. So when you have found someone you want to back, um, and this decision is really marginal, but which is rare, you will not walk away that easily, which means founders have 
most of the time more leverage than they realize because somebody spends six months or four months or whatever it is finding something they want to put money behind get it past partnership you know this again is a rare moment and so you can push back on stuff you don't like and i would say respectfully don't get upset but you know stand your ground and i think that people get away with more than they think that's really really helpful advice um so the last thing i want to want to touch on was you know we're, we're talking here and you know about kind of slowdown in the startup markets letting people go that reality that we're seeing in, in the ecosystem that, that we're part of is was very briefly reflected in the public markets uh, but you know other than oil and, and probably a couple of other commodities it's no longer reflected in the public market. There seems to be untold glee um, back in the public stock markets. You could say that a lot of that is down to the to, you know the additional QE and things like that. But if we get the you know the V-shaped recovery that the public investors obviously are expecting, what from your experience do you think the time lag will be before we see more positivity within the startup sphere and, and you know more money? being poured in and, and it can be back on the up again? Uh, it's a great question. I'm going to answer it in, a, in, in the negative. We don't know. And everybody who thinks they know is fooling themselves. And so the first statement, the first thing to realize is a little bit like what happened in 2008 when the risk models and the derivatives model, the credit risk models all got broken at the same time. So effectively, people realized that the regulatory models, internal risk management models, et cetera, were all broken. So they had not accounted for a crisis of, of uh, the magnitude of 2008 and nine. Uh, I think similarly here, the macroeconomic models cannot account for what's coming. You just can't. Like anybody in their right mind who's doing, uh, who's doing proper macro will tell you that there's too many variables, there's too many unknowns, you can't model. So the first thing to say is we are incredibly ignorant. Whether you choose to trust the public markets is an indication of what the future holds is up to you. Um, I, <laughs> I don't, but you know, I, I don't know. So if you say I don't know, then what you do is you put yourself in the mindset of enduring. And, and so I'm kind of not answering your question, but I think the endurance mindset is very important here. We don't know how long the crisis is going to be. We don't know how deep it's going to be. Hence, don't hope for anything. It is much better to say, I will not fail. I will not let this crisis put me down. I will, even if I do fail, you know, this will be a defining moment in my life because I will learn so much. So in other words, I will be shaped positively by events and put yourself in that mindset and go like, I have no freaking clue when the market comes back and then be evidence-based yeah. in your business, in your sector, uh, you're with a, again, with a cool head. So to know when the funding markets are quote unquote going to come back is uh, too abstract. And in fact, they will come back gradually. So some people have fresh pools of capital and they'll be investing through, you know, index, just raised funds, North Zone's got a fresh fund, we got a fresh fund with, as we know, very reduced pace. And then within that, you're going to see pockets of acceleration. So see Figma, Notion, you know, all the obvious winners from the crisis are already beginning picked off by the growth funds and getting massive amounts of funding because people know that they will build incredible businesses through the crisis. So there, the answer is never macro. The answer is always micro in our world. And so you can defy the odds if your business allows you to. The only thing I would say is like, 
have an endurance mindset and accept uncertainty. You know, I would not make any assumptions about V-shaped recovery. I think that is, that's foolish. And then if it doesn't happen, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be, oh shit, you know, uh, Father Christmas didn't come. Yeah. And, and now I don't have my bike and, you know, uh, like just, just put yourself in the mindset of the marathon runner, except you don't know how long the marathon is going to be. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the old thing. It's like hope is not a strategy. Have you ever heard of the Stockdale paradox? Uh, only by reading uh, your Twitter. Okay, but explain it for explain it for the listeners. Yeah, very quick one. So, uh, Admiral Jim Stockdale went to an infamous place called the Hanoi Hotel for six years, which is effectively where the Viet Cong were holding U.S. prisoners of war and torturing them. And he made it through, and he says. I was lucky that this happened to me because it made me a stronger, better person. And this is the defining experience of my life. And, you know, I sustained and I grew as a person, etc. And then he's also asked, okay, so who didn't make it through? He said, well, the optimist. Because the optimist always thought that by Christmas they'd be out. And then Christmas came and they were still in. And he said, they all died of a broken heart. Yeah. So this is what's called the Stockdale paradox, which is, we're all inherently optimistic, but actually putting yourself in a mindset of, I don't know how long it's going to be, but I will prevail. Or even if I don't prevail, it will change me into a better person. You know, whatever the worst outcome is that you can imagine, I mean, short of death, you know, it will be a defining experience of your life. Yeah. On on that, I think the, the kind of the endurance analogy, the endurance athlete analogy you made makes a lot of sense. So Back in the 2008 crisis, I was in banking. I was on trading floor for HSBC and foreign exchange. And I remember the day when, when Lima went down and their office was in Canary Wharf, just kind of um, you know five minutes walk from where we were. But I was in a job for the next three years. If you look at the stock market, it definitely wasn't a V-shaped recovery, but it was recovering. The, I think the bottom of stocks was like 2009. But 2011, HSBC and other banks globally still hadn't properly recovered. And they made a sweeping wave of redundancies i was one of them and you know that that is three years kind of what you'd say you know post the actual crisis and if you think or even if it's not a v-shaped if it's u-shaped and then it will come back to exactly the way it was it can be a lot longer to get back to normal than, than people think well so what you're talking about actually is a form of knock-on effects and this is why i say the the, the micro trumps the macro so the banks were about 32 times over levered or levered, sorry, when, when the crisis hit in 08. And so, first of all, there was a long deleveraging cycle, uh, cleaning up of, of bad balance sheets, etc. But then there was regulation. And the regulation was so severe that it took out uh, the profits from a, from a bunch of uh, traditional investment banking activities and, you know, gradually actually sucked the life out of a, a good portion of the, uh, of the sector. And so, it, you, what you're probably looking at is the kind of delayed impact of of that, you know, kind of taking out entire chunks of the business or taking their profitability so low that, you know, you just couldn't sustain the same operating base. And, and, and what you do, by the way, you replace people with tech, right? So you do online trading and, you know, you do much more algorithmic and, and, and then you can get rid of, you know, get rid of uh, your people. Fred, I'm going to give you some time back because I know you're a very busy person. Before we go, just one thing. Is there anything that, uh, any advice you have for people to, to help get through lockdown? Anything you're watching, reading, listening to? Yeah, I mean, my core piece of advice, which I think uh, I've been saying this since day one, I think it's fairly widely accepted now, but it's like, turn off the fucking news. You know, there is zero benefit in being the world's expert at the latest number of cases, 
uh, the serology results or, or whatever it may be. I, I think unless that's your job, what it does do is it puts you into a cycle of extreme anxiety that you may not even recognize. So you think you're keeping yourself informed, but actually you're just destroying your chemistry. You need to be informed about the things that impact you, but just turn off the news. And then I think you need to be very intentful about how you use time. And one of the beauties of uh, separation from others, etc., is that, you know, finding yourself and being okay with silence or with calm or with, you know, uh, you know, just, just there's a beauty in that. And I think we all forgot what that looks like. Um, and certainly for me, what it's done is it's kind of allowed me to think more. Yeah. Uh, and part of the reason why I've been so active on Twitter is I kind of found a little bit of room to think instead of having uh, meetings from uh, 8 a.m. to uh, to 9 p.m. every day. And that thinking time has been very valuable. So it's like everything in life, you know, look for the positives and then send love letters to the people you love, whatever shape they take, uh, write them, you know, take real time, you know, with the people that you love and who are remote and people around you who might suffer. But I think there's so much um, strength for yourself, actually, in kind of trying to give a little bit back to others of your time, of your attention, of your energy. Uh, and I think for me, that's probably been the, I, you know, I've enjoyed, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm virtue signaling, but I've, I've certainly enjoyed trying to do that. Fred Destin, thank you so much uh, for coming on and, and having a chat. All right, my pleasure. Good luck, everyone. Thanks for listening. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, Reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts. 